Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Southeast Radio. Welcome back to Southeast Radio's Business Matters with me, Carl Fitzpatrick. Well, my guest this morning is Chris Voss from the Black Swan Group. Chris, you were the lead international hostage negotiator for the FBI. It's the stuff movies are made of. But how did you find yourself in that position? Good morning, Carl. Happy to be on with you. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I was an FBI agent. Uh, I was a member of the SWAT team, and I wanted to shift my role uh, and stay in crisis response. And so we had negotiators. I decided, you know, I could do that. How hard could it be? You just talk to people, right? It ended up being a lot harder than I expected, but um, it was a great move. And what type of training was provided to you to prepare you for that type of a role? Well, the biggest thing that I did that made made the most difference was I volunteered on a suicide hotline in New York City. And uh, I wasn't initially I wasn't qualified at all to be a negotiator. I didn't have any background training, education in it. And they said, go volunteer on a hotline, which I did. And it was fantastic. It made all the difference in the world. And what did you learn from that experience? You know, really the power of emotional intelligence. We didn't call it that back then. Um, we didn't know it was emotional intelligence, you know, but how do you quickly develop a working relationship with somebody through rapport? And then how much influence does that give you if you do? And that, that's really what it was. I learned, you know, weaponized emotional intelligence, if you will. And what was the most challenging and difficult negotiation that you've ever been involved in? Wow. Well, the most difficult really one was a kidnapping in the Philippines. And the reason that it turned out to be the most challenging was, you know, we had a great, uh, we built a great relationship with the kidnapper's spokesperson on the other side, but we just didn't sense that he didn't have a great relationship with his team. And uh, he made a commitment to release the hostages and then, the people on his side of the table reneged on it, and it ended up being a very ugly situation, and people got killed. In those particular situations, the tensions are running high. On the basis of that, are you finding that people are making decisions emotionally instead of logically? Yeah, well, that's that's the catch. That's the rub. Because in point of fact, that's the only way that people make decisions, when tensions run high or not. I mean, we got the brain science now that proves that every decision that we make goes through the emotional part of our brain. And as other brain science approves, that if our emotions don't interplay with our thinking, then we actually can't make a decision. So all decisions are emotional is, is the harsh reality of human existence. But is it a matter of getting the balance right between emotion and logic, in your opinion? There's a certain amount of balance. And it's not really emotion, uh, emotions and logic. It's really much more positive and negative emotions. Because the other thing that brain science has pointed out to us is that with in positive emotions, we're actually smarter. This guy named Sean Acker did a TED Talk, Harvard psychologist, says we're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Now, the negative emotions are the ones that make us dumb, and they also convince us that we're right. So it's, it's really a bad, uh, balance between positive and negative. Now, you've been quoted as saying that everything that we've learned about negotiation to date is wrong. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's pretty crazy for somebody to say that, right? That's out there. <laughs> but um, if we learn emotions, and it's keyed by what you asked me a second ago. You know, this idea of logic. I mean, logic's like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. We make our logical decisions based on what we care about, 
which then makes logic and decisions an emotion-based process because we weigh out what we care about. And that's really the fundamental change in negotiation theory. And how do you go about unearthing exactly what they do care about? Because a lot of the time, maybe emotion and ego get in the way. Yeah, all the time. Well, you know, you, uh, you, basically you start to try to repeat it back to them. I mean, you paraphrase it. You take some wild guesses. And they're not that wild if you're actually <laughs> paying attention to the other side. And then once you start t- trying to genuinely pay attention, the other side appreciates it. And it's kind of ridiculous as to how much they're going to open up. And apart from unearthing that individual motivation, what other types of strategic preparation do you do in advance of negotiating? Well, you know, listen to what your gut instincts are about what they're upset about, and then be willing to just articulate it, repeat it back to them without denying it or saying, like, like I don't want you to be upset about this. I mean, just put a, a slightest amount of effort into why they would be against the deal and simply let them know you're aware of it. And you'd be shocked at how much that goes to eliminate obstacles. And do you use a particular negotiation process throughout all negotiations, or does it very much depend on the particular circumstances? No, well, it's a little like a tailor. I mean, the tailor's going to use the same tools on you to, to manufacture your clothes, whether you're tall or whether you're short, whether you're stocky, whether you're skinny. So the tools are pretty much the same. You adapt slightly to the shape of the deal, but you're still using the same tools. And what are the most effective tools and techniques that you use in negotiations? Deference is a ridiculously powerful tool. I mean, you're looking to gather, really, you're looking to gather information in a negotiation. And then with deference, and then actually occasionally getting it wrong, because when you get it wrong, the other side corrects you. And they tend to correct you with a lot of information. People love to correct. So in point of fact, you know, that's a, that's a human nature desire that, that we exploit. We, we're deferential. We let you correct us, and we learn a lot about you. And how many different types of negotiator exist today? Yeah, well, this is, this is the one that probably blow your mind a little bit, but I can give you an analogy as to why it's true. You know, we believe that there's basically three types of negotiators. And people say, like, well, you got to be kidding me. Like, you know, what about the Chinese? What, you know, what about the, what about the Latin? You know, what about the Indian subcontinent? What about all these places? How can there be three types? And in point of fact, the analogy I'll use is, is uh, fingerprints. You know how many types of fingerprints there are? There's three. And there are at least one, you know, there's got to be at least 70 billion unique fingerprints on a planet now because each one of us has 10 unique fingerprints on our hands. So you can have three basic types and still come up with unique individuals and circumstances. So, yeah, there are three types. So how would you describe the difference between each of the three? You know, the shorthand is fight, flight, or make friends. When they, when they see a conflict, when they see a dispute, when they see a reason for negotiation, when they see a threat or an opportunity, the gut instinct response is, are they, do, they, do they fight? You know, are they ready to put up a fight? Are they very analytical in their approach when they see fighting is nonsense and they're going to avoid it or they're going to, you know, they're going to flight is their response or in the conflict, do they find that their gut instinct is to make friends? So it's really fight, flight and make friends. So how do you change and adapt your approach depending on the style of negotiator that you're confronting? Yeah, it's a great question. And 
so, you know, we've done a lot of experimentation because we've got basically nine negotiation tools that we teach people how to use. And we've actually polled all three types, probably 10 to 15,000 across the world, and said, which ones do you like? And the two skills that everybody likes, which in, in my book, Never Split the Difference, we refer to as labels and mirrors. All three types like those skills. And so if you learn those two, then that's how you start out with the types, and then you adapt from there. Okay, I'm intrigued. From the mirror's perspective, I'm thinking that you're very much copying what you're seeing on the other side. But what about the labels? Yeah, that's a good question. And our mirroring is slightly different. Uh, Hostage negotiators' mirroring is mirroring their words, and specifically one to three words that they've just spoken. But a label uh, is just labeling a dynamic or an emotion that's occurring in the negotiation. So, for example, um, if somebody calls you on the phone, they've got an idea, label the dynamic and say, it seems like you've given this a lot of thought. That's actually a very specifically designed way to bypass part of their brain and get them talking to you and giving you a stream of consciousness response by simply making a verbal observation of what's going on. Okay, talk to me about the stages in any of the negotiations that you're involved in. Well, you know, there's, an inf- uh, there's information gathering at the beginning, and part of that information gathering is gathering information about the person you're dealing with. Are they going to collaborate with me? Can I collaborate with them? So, in a pro- and, and the information gathering is what's the true nature of the situation, what's the true nature of the opportunity. Now, sort of the middle phase is can we make any progress on this? Can we move forward? You know, is, is my gut feel for you going to be rewarded? So we, we now start to narrow down of all the possibilities. You know, what can we implement? What can we figure out? And then finally, do I want to do this deal at all? Like, I may not want to do it. The possibilities are not good enough. Or maybe I want to deal, do the deal, but I don't like you, and I don't want to do it with you. So the last end of it is, you know, how do we decide we're going to move forward, and then how do we set the stage for moving forward? Once you go about gathering all of the data and the intelligence and the information that you need, how do you then go about influencing the other party? The data gathering process will dictate that. Like, do they feel heard in the process? Did I develop rapport with them? Did I establish, you know, the mystical thing called empathy? If I have, then they're going to listen to me. You know, the Stephen Covey advice from way back when, seek first to understand in order to be understood. Well, seek first to demonstrate understanding so that you can have influence. That's how you get it. And how do you negotiate with somebody with a big ego that wants to win at all costs? Oh, that's an easy one. Now, all they need to do is feel like they won. And so as long as they felt like they won the deal, I can actually make them feel like they won what I wanted in the first place. You know, some people call negotiation as the art of letting the other side have your way. Well, somebody wants to win at all costs is actually pretty easy because all they got to do is feel like they won. So how do you structure that particular approach? Well, with deference, you say stuff like, you know, uh, I'm sorry I can't do that. How else can we do it? If you say that really deferential, deferentially, the person that wants to feel like they won, they're going to keep answering that how question until they come up with an answer that you love. And then when they do, you paraphrase it to, and they tell you that you got it right, which they feel like even more in charge because they told you again. 
And then you look at him and you say, all right, you know, that's a great idea. Let's do it like that. And they feel like they won. Now, you speak in your book, Never Split the Difference, about tactical empathy. What is it and how do you use it? Yeah, well, really, it's, you know, we know so much more about empathy than we knew before we had neuroscience. We know how the brain works. So let's use it tactically. One of the things that we know about how the brain works is that the brain is 75% negative and simply calling negatives out, not denying them, but recognizing the elephant in the room based on neuroscience is that tactically the best way to get rid of the elephant in the room. So now that we know that that's true, and it's not psychology, it's actual neuroscience that backs it up, let's just apply that knowledge. And in terms of deadlock situations, I'm sure you've been in many over the years. How do you unlock those situations? Well, deadlock is usually mostly a misunderstanding. And it's usually almost always a misunderstanding between the types on the meaning of the words. So really what all you have to do is go back in and question the definitions and the reasons you think you're deadlocked and start repeating it back to the other side to see whether or not they correct you. The majority of deadlocks are as a result of misunderstanding, really, and not of disagreement. I think one of your big criticisms of business people is they're too easily led into splitting the difference, something you're absolutely against. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, there's a saying in negotiation that a person who wants to meet you in the middle is usually a poor judge at distance. The vast majority of the people that are trying to get you to split the difference all they did was double what they wanted in the first place so that they can make you feel like it was fair and they split the difference and end up where they wanted to be all along. So in point of fact, the implementation of that is most often a con job. You know, it's just disingenuous. So that's the first reason. The second reason splitting the difference is bad is that like, look, you know, you're trying to put together two solutions that don't fit together you're probably guaranteeing that it's not going to work out by putting pieces together that just don't fit. I mean, you know, there's an old saying, uh, a giraffe is what you came up with when you originally needed a horse. Hmm. Well, you end up with a giraffe when you needed a horse, it's just not going to work. How much deflection takes place in a typical negotiation from your experience? Ah. Those are the people that don't have long-term relationships. Deflection is a bad idea because the other side is going to find out eventually if you deflected them, and then they're never going to do business with you again. So I would say that probably about 25% of the people you encounter are going to try that nonsense on you, and you have to have your guard up for it. And from your days as a hostage negotiator, what skills did you then translate into the business world of negotiation? Really understanding how how fear-driven people are and how to deactivate and diffuse that fear. I mean, kidnappers and terrorists, you know, they're 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 really they they become angry because of fear, because of loss, and what that does to people. So my job as a hostage negotiator was learn how to deactivate that so that people didn't get killed. That's the same thing that drives everybody in, in human nature. Now, you speak in your book also about the importance of building a relationship in the negotiation. So how did you go about building trust in those hostage negotiation situations? Yeah, you know, you start with deference, and then really you build trust. If you, if you eliminate the word trust and you put predictability back in, people trust somebody that they can predict. So I just need to be a man of my word. You might not like my word, 
But if I'm a man of my word, you know that whatever I say, you can count on it. And then I become predictable and you trust me. One of the oldest tricks in negotiation was the fear of loss is greater than the desire for gain. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's absolutely true. And that's so powerful that you have to be careful with it. And that's why in order to use that, you really need empathy. You really need tactical empathy. You need emotional intelligence. You need to approach people in a straightforward way, but you're honest with them, but you're not blunt. I mean, you you tell people the way it is in an emotionally intelligent way. You're cautious with them, but you're honest with them. And fear of loss is, is why people make deals. So use that power wisely. Use it with empathy. And apart from that particular power, what other superpowers are you using on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, you know, really uh, hearing people out, people love to be heard out, uh, occasionally intentionally getting you to correct me because you're going to love to correct me. It's going to make you feel good. It's going to make you feel powerful. And you're going to want to continue to work with me. And you're going to want me to listen to you. Then you're going to be really impressed with me because I listen to you. And those kind of things start to roll in together and, and give you really good emotional intelligence influence over people. And from your experience, what are the mistakes that lots of business people are making when it does come to negotiation? Yeah, being determined to make their point. I mean, a lot of business people are determined, I got to have my say. You know, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to make our case. We're going to make our argument. Well, if you're arguing, you're losing. And also, if you're making your point, you're not gathering any information. You're not getting any smarter in the moment. You're not getting smarter when you're talking. You're getting smarter when you're listening to the other side. You're picking up data and you're figuring it out. So the biggest mistake is the person who's determined to make their case and go first. We live in a world that's full of commodities. How can business owners compete in that type of an environment? And what advice have you got for them? Well, we're looking for the lowest price in the absence of trust. You know, we start looking for price because the deal doesn't work for us in other ways. I mean, I can take any deal on a planet And I can make the terms around that deal either good or bad based on the terms. I can take a price that's, you know, mediocre or maybe even a bad price, and I can probably turn that into a good deal based on the terms. What else comes with it? You know, what kind of predictability is it? What's the follow-up? If I run into problems, is that person going to be there for me? People focus on price when they've been disappointed in everything else. You start to deliver everything else. People pay for quality. Uh, Worldwide, people pay for quality. Well, if you've just tuned in, that was a former international hostage negotiator for the FBI, Chris Voss of the Black Swan Group, and I'd like to thank Chris for sharing his advice and expertise on negotiation with us this morning. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.